Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Ether is the perfect drug for Las Vegas. In this town, they love a drunk. Fresh meat. Come on, buddy. So they put us through the turnstiles and turned us loose inside. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dose of Ether. Thanks for joining us again this week. This is your host, Lucian, and joining me again is our trusty co-host, Evan Van Ness. How's it going, Evan? Howdy, what's going on? I'm doing well, enjoying the sun, trying to maintain my New Year's resolutions, and uh, actually I've failed at all of them already. Yeah, I've failed at all of them. That's okay, though. <laughs> Maybe next year. It's about the journey. <laughs> so, how about your uh, your New Year's resolutions or your resolution to finish that year in Ethereum article? Yeah, I don't know if I've ever really made New Year's resolutions, uh, but we did finally finish year in Ethereum, so it is out there, and... Uh, it was a beast of an article. I forget the word count, but it was, it was, you know, I don't know, a lot, like 6,000 words or something like that. Um, it, you know, Josh and I worked on it for a long time. We like, you know, more than a month, obviously at varying levels of intensity. And finally, like we realized that we just needed to ship. So we shipped, um, and, I actually I posted a thread yesterday that was like sort of an errata list of like the things we missed. <laughs> and there were like 14 things on there. So despite the fact that, uh, you know, it was a 6,000 word or something article, like we still missed a lot of things or uh, chose them not to, you know, be one of the top stories of the year or whatever the the funny thing is that we managed to miss tornado cash which was like the most obvious like big thing big thing to happen in 2019 is that they shipped it to mainnet and we somehow forgot to put it in there so <laughs> and that was like uh, the first and one of the top of the list of the things that we talked about in the last show <laughs> as being like a highlight of the year <laughs> yeah there was uh, there was a post that you linked to from Gavin Andreessen, a, I mean probably the most OG living Bitcoiner, um, and the man who the man who Satoshi picked to take over the repo. Yeah, that's uh, he started working with Hal Finney, basically being the first two individuals with real names to pick up the development effort. And he launched a series of blog posts on the promises of Tornado Cash. And I found it very insightful. I found it very interesting um, in that it seems like the potential of Tornado Cash does need an ecosystem. So the same type of support infrastructure and wallet integration that has been uh, made for Maker and Dai, um, if we start seeing that with Tornado Cash, it will be really interesting because most of his articles are about how using actual privacy solutions are um, chocked full of foot guns. Like you're going to shoot yourself in the foot just by making small mistakes and having a convenient front-end user face that uh, he recommends being implemented into a wallet seems ideal. And it was a very short and to-the-point article. I think someone is going to do it within the next six months, knowing the Ethereum space. Um, and yeah, it seems like the rush to integrate a wallet into Tornado Cash has already begun. I'm curious to see who's going to be the first team to do it successfully. Yeah, and it might be the Tornado Cash guys. They, you know, they just got they were the big winners of Gitcoin grants and I think they got $25,000. 
Um, but they, you know, they did this on a on a relatively small amount of funding. I think they got a forty thousand dollar grant from Moloch, but it was after they had shipped their original. Um, they they shipped like a very simple version first, with, and it was disabled for anything more than zero point one ETH um, contributions. So, um, you know, they, yeah, it, it, it's, they've done a lot with, with a little, and they actually had a, one of the, there are two guys that are both named Roman and their <laughs> last names, both, they're both Russian. Their last names both begin with S. So it's like the two, the two Russian Roman S's. Um, <clears throat> one of them, Roman Storm wrote, wrote a, a tweet, which I don't think he meant to be quite so terse but it sort of ended up people took it as a little terse like in fact he actually had somebody um write back like you should be happy that you know uh gavin gavin wrote all this stuff um but he his tweet was we never said tornado cash is the complete solution what else could we have built for 40k keep in mind we didn't have vc funding no ico no new chain with mining nothing just Moloch DAO and POA network grants. So, yeah, it's uh, that's uh, that's a big achievement, and I do get the sense that it was like a small, like passionate team. And um, I've listened to part of the Zero Knowledge podcast interview with the two of them, and they seem knowledgeable. Um, they have a good perspective. You have to be to implement some kind of zero knowledge proof based system. Um, they had basically taken the design of uh, Barry Whitehat's implementation that I forget, um, <laughs> but we could link Miximus. Miximus, yes. Not like, like Maximus, but with mix in it. And. Um, they basically took that design, um, but implemented it with zero, different zero knowledge proof circuits to optimize it, make it um, faster to compute, probably easier to prove on Ethereum as well. Yeah, and it's really, I mean, we've talked about it before, so we probably shouldn't do it like in too much ad nauseum, but I mean, it's really usable. Like uh, that, that was a point they tried to make on that podcast, but it is like, it is really usable. Now, the one thing that is like super important to note is that you have to keep the, the you know, the, the, the text string in order to be able to claim your, your ETH or whatever out of the mixer. And uh, that is, I mean, that is basically like key management all over again, right? <laughs> like, um, but it's, but it's, but we don't have hardware wallets or anything built for it yet. So, I mean, hopefully, you know, smart contract wallets like Argent or whatever will be the will, will be able to abstract it away in a useful way. Not super simple to do, but um, you know, right now the best solution is probably just to like take that text string and save it into a file on your computer and encrypt it. I mean, to be fair, like for most people, it's fine to just like if it's ten dollars, if it's like point one ETH, you can just leave it in your Gmail or something, right? Um, but if it's like, you know, one ETH, then you maybe want to, you know, put it as a text file and maybe encrypt it. You know, it all depends on your threat model too, you know? <laughs> the most annoying part about um, that aspect and not having an automated solution or a wallet to back it up, it's like having cash, right? It's exactly, yeah, it's exactly like having cash, which is their big point, right? Like you have it's bills. cash. <laughs> yeah. You essentially have bills. Um, some listeners on our podcast got really excited with the Kong Cash episode. Um, I don't know if you saw them during uh, DevCon this year, but they had really interesting physical bills with uh, the uh, with a secure chip that can sign transactions. It has um, NFT, and um, it also has some like contact points. But the idea was that they created a physical representation of digital cash because the bills themselves had chips that could sign private keys, similar to the way um, a credit card or a debit card has a chip on it. 
these chips are like even less reduced and they do nothing except um, sign crypto keys. And they basically built physical digital cash. <laughs> and it's it'd be cool if they could combine it because the, the bills themselves are recorded and registered um, in, onto an Ethereum smart contract. And um, so they're like ERC-20 tokens, but you can trade them in its digital form. Um, they opened their registration recently. So the bills that I picked up during DevCon, I'm going to register on an app soon. I'll let the listeners know how the experience of that goes as well. Oh, neat. I didn't realize you could register soon. Funny story, we were actually together when we both, or at least when I saw it for the first time. Mm-hmm. upstairs in that like i don't know what the room was it wasn't like the kong cash room but they were giving away kong anyway. it was an escape room and you had yeah, to solve yeah. problems i uh i went back in there with the uh the team from dap node and uh, basically spent half of a day solving the escape room <laughs> to like <laughs> to be able to get uh more of those bills <laughs> so yeah they um i have a friend who's going to a meet up in san francisco for kong cash uh, i think it's this week and um they like basically got new updates and that's how i found out that they have an app now <laughs> that we can now register those bills it's a super neat idea i think you know the the like the trade-offs they made of course like to try to have a business is that it's their own ERC-20 token. So, um, you know, which, yeah, I mean, we'll see whether it ends up being valuable, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, where, so I wouldn't be surprised if there's other people that try to do essentially the same thing, but just put ETH on it or something like that. Right. Um, and there's no exact business model there, which is like kind of the trade-off, but it'll, it'll be interesting to see, you know, it's like, um, one of the many experiments in, um, you know, when can you tokenize and when can't you and when will people fork it away and, and, and whatnot. So uh, there was the old yeah. experiment so, with uh, the Caseus coins, like the uh, physical coins that had a sticker on them and on the back, like once you remove the sticker, it had a QR code. Um, obviously, that's not like an unforgeable like you have to trust the person who stuck a sticker on the back of your Bitcoin coin to assume that they won't remove all the money that's associated with the private key that they're exposing. Um, yeah, I think it's it's an interesting solution and um, experimentation hardware is, uh, it's just starting. I think their original intention is to open source the chip design so that there are uh, like open source architectures for the the types of secure enclave chips that are on the bills. Um, yeah, uh, it was a very, very interesting episode on hashing it out, if you haven't seen it. Uh, enlightening. And the bills just look cool. So <laughs> I feel like so they already cool, have, yeah. I feel like they already have value just by looking cool. <laughs> I mean, I value mine some. Yeah, the one thing, if you do have them, you should note is apparently if you fold them too much, you might break the circuit. So don't do that. I'm I'm actually nervous that I've already broken mine. I mm. mean, I've tried to keep them flat, but we'll see. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm interested because they also have contact points. So technically, you should be able to hook them up to a Raspberry Pi. That'd be cool. Yeah, um, we should also talk about um a tokenized coffee future project i forgot yeah, the that's name something of i've do you alfagado alfagado how do you spell that it is a f f o g a t o dot co so i'll give that to you again for anybody that might be typing it in or writing it down a f f o g a t o dot co uh so it's some some guys in honduras and honduras obviously has has great coffee and they are 
so they, they've been at some like some ETH events before, like they were at ETH Denver last year in ETH New York, and they were selling some of their coffee. They actually ended up giving me one because at the end they were like, they had some that was left over. So they gave some to me, which I'm not really a coffee drinker. So I gave it to my wife and she said it was incredible. Um, like best, best coffee beans that she'd ever, ever gotten. Um, anyway, so they're selling this like specialty roast, um, you know, that they claim will be much better than even that one was that I got at ETH New York. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of unisox style. So it's like on a bonding curve, but it's a very, it's a much less steep bonding curve. So, um, everybody is essentially paying close to the same price <clears throat> and it's, you know, it's cool. It's like, it's, it's an experiment in whether basically like that you know with crypto they can help cut out middlemen not that you couldn't necessarily do some of that like without crypto but um in particular like you could see like coffee futures um, becoming a thing and that is like sort of a decentralized finance kind of flavor and then you could even see some of these like coffee futures you know maybe even being like collateral for you know, your, your die, right? Um, it is, you know, it's volatile, but is it any more volatile than the price of ETH? <laughs> Who knows? The price we'll, of coffee, we'll I'm out, assuming, maybe. is a bit more stable. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, actually. I mean, <clears throat> you know, a lot of, a lot of agricultural, uh, you know, futures are quite, quite volatile, but, but ETH is so volatile, who knows? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's cool that you can swap the uh, token, which is currently trading for zero point one one two ETH or eighteen dollars, um, and this is about a third of a kilogram of coffee. And you can swap your token for like the physical delivery of coffee. I don't know if shipping's included. <laughs> Shipping something from Peru might be a little expensive. I don't think they have Prime. Um, <laughs> but this is a really cool experiment. Um, and I don't want to be facetious about it because I think there is a massive potential of people starting to like sell their products online without a centralized intermediary. And if you can do this in a large enough scale... Traditionally, what would happen would be all of the profits would get concentrated in the exchange because they would have like uh, first access to information, and they expect uh, they essentially would do the same thing that Amazon does. They follow the um, sales patterns of uh, all of the startups, and if they notice like, hey, there is a hundred and twenty dollar desk office chair market that wants faux leather and like this exact look they will go contract it themselves and completely wipe out the company that had been previously doing that by either cutting them out excluding them from their al search algorithm and just like replacing them with their own product um, this happens with food as well so it's not <laughs> by accident that I use the Amazon example because we have Whole Foods, which in the United States used to be one of the few supermarket chains which would actually act as a hub for helping distribute and promote new local food items. And it's likely that um, these smallholder producers will start kind of getting either replaced or concentrated uh, and once they notice that people will pay a premium for certain items, then they'll just try to find like the lowest cost producer that has the same number of fair trade stickers on it and just try to capture the difference for themselves. And going around that entire system, you could imagine like I consume probably uh half a kilogram worth of coffee normally <laughs> per month and if you were able to have like a liquid trading network in which 
let's say multiple people within your community have uh, also bought coffee futures, then you get to the point in which you could reasonably have uh, coffee imported directly in a industrial sized bag. You could contract out the roasting process to a small uh, roasting facility and you could do so in a cheaper and less expensive way. But the coordination cost is is just massive. And the idea of digitizing it, having it like on a globally distributed uh, rules-based ledger like Ethereum could kind of introduce a whole new business model. Yeah, I'm showing the fact that I have tried a startup in this field. <laughs> oh, interesting. I, did, I didn't know that. <clears throat> yeah. I, I, I would... <clears throat> I essentially I, I would tried say, doing a startup doing exactly that, but <laughs> uh, yes. the, I would say they promise to include shipping, um, but I think their goal is to try to redeem most of them at, e at East Denver. Right. Um, so because I think last last year they basically tried to sell them on site, and um, this year they're basically hoping they can figure out demand before they before they bring bring the supply. It's um, a pre sale. Yeah. Did, yeah, they did promise to, to ship it. So um, to, at least to the U.S. anyway, I think they, I don't know if they promised beyond that. I guess it, they're in Honduras, so it might be a little bit cheaper for them to the U.S. than maybe to, you know, Germany or something. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's cool. I bought a few already. I'm probably going to buy a few more. I I sold this, uh, this NFT for Week in Ethereum uh, three-year anniversary. Uh, which I guess was maybe six months ago now. And I did a like an annotated edition for a few weeks. Um, and I've started doing that again for free, but um, <clears throat> uh, I'm still like trying to like give away stuff. So I'm probably going to buy a few of these things and, and give them away to people that hold my NFT. Nice. So, yeah. That's cool. So you have an NFT in the form of like a subscription so people who so, like subscribed, it's kind of like a Patreon, but the Ethereum version of it. Yeah. So I originally, I basically just said, this is an NFT and I'm going to through NF through unlock protocol. I'm going to do one annotated edition of weekend Ethereum for the three year anniversary. So you get the little like collectible NFT plus this one annotated edition. I think it costs like about, 15 to 20 bucks about like this um, cafe token that that Afogato is selling and and I sold like a hundred of them I think which is pretty cool nice. and uh, I used the money I put it back into Gitcoin grants so uh, I felt like it was kind of a win-win for the whole ecosystem and uh, I ended up doing like six annotated issues so hopefully people felt like i under promised and over delivered and and then i've done a couple of, i've done already done one giveaway like to people that sign a message using you know if they sign a message from that address then uh i forget what i gave away um but i'll just give another few away from this the unlock actually they they also like forbes you can pay through using the like same deal like buy an nft from unlock protocol and you get ads for ads free Forbes, which is pretty cool. Hmm. Um, I think they only took ETH and not stable coins, like not DAI, which is kind of a shame. But um, yeah, kind of neat. If you want to <laughs> check that out, it's the same concept. You can actually technically still buy my NFT if you if, but I, I mean, at this point, it's just a collectible. There's no nothing. I, I just find it really funny that. Um... <laughs> That Forbes would only accept non-stable uh, coins. <laughs> it's like they can't stay Forbes if uh, if they don't have upside. <laughs> yeah, having done it, I think the reason why is because you had to deploy two contracts, like one with ETH and one with, with stable coins, and they probably just decided it wasn't worth the hassle. But hmm. yeah. It's probably yeah. an IT guy's decision because he didn't care. <laughs> and um, there's there's been um, 
speaking of like gas costs, that wasn't the smoothest of transitions, but <laughs> I did want to bring up this other uh, topic of conversation, and it is um, Ethereum EIP two zero two eight, which is um, uh, a suggestion to reduce gas prices further which would allow more transactions and um, larger block sizes, essentially. And there was a lot of research that you were also given some credit for um, from the team at Starkware. And they published a bunch of research regarding the argument for increasing the block size. So the argument prior um, to this was we can't increase the block size because the uncle rate will rise. And if the uncle rate rises, the uncle rate is essentially the uh, conciliatory reward for successfully mining a block in Ethereum, but not having it attached to the canonical main chain. So it's like, because Ethereum has a 15 second um, or 14 second block window, and what happens is that there are several people who probabilistically get a uh, response to the uh, proof of work challenge and only one of those people ends up like contributing to the canonical chain so rather than not giving any kind of reward to the uh, people who put in the mining work but maybe ha are part of uh, a slightly slower like network group or segment and they weren't able to propagate their successful block fast enough um, they get some a consolation award essentially and the reason that people used to think that increasing the block size would increase the uncle rate was essentially because the amount of time it takes to send a message and propagate it through the entire world is, I don't know, between three to five uh, seconds in bad network conditions, but you can essentially guarantee that a piece of information can get um, scattered through the Ethereum network in that amount of time. But if it takes you substantially longer to process the information within a block and to validate the um, every transaction in that block, then essentially you have a shorter and shorter amount of time before you fairly continue to do proof of work on something that has already been solved, you just hadn't heard about it yet. So they assumed that it would actually increase the uh, uncle rate, which has negative consequences like increasing the inflation of Ethereum and other um, side effects as well. But Starkware, the people who we spoke about on last episode as well, having demonstrated um, 90,000 transactions per second using a uh, zero-knowledge proof-based uh, layer two solution with a um, transaction pool that's off-chain, we might add. Um, they have the direct incentive to try to increase the amount of data that could go onto the block, but they published a bunch of research demonstrating and simulating, actually not simulating, they actually created massive block sizes and propagated them through the Ethereum network and showed that there wasn't a big increase in uncles after the latest fork that happened in January. So that's a lot of words. <laughs> <laughs> to, to explain a fairly technical and complicated concept. But um, what do you think is like the most important takeaway from this proposal? Yeah, I guess the most important takeaway is that it means that rollups, like we haven't hit the ceiling of what kind of ceiling is possible for rollups on Ethereum. And I like because this this 2028 it it was in Istanbul and it it reduced the the, the gas cost of of call data um, and it went from 68 to I think it was 12 um, 
I forget actually, but um, it, it you know it went it went went down like a four x or something, and uh, if they if they lower it further, then you know if they lower it another fifty percent or whatever, then they can double the amount of throughput that is possible on using rollups on on Ethereum. So you know we're gonna see some using even crazier numbers that are you know above the theoretical or yeah i guess above the theoretical maximum of even the visa network um it would that would be like we said like using off-chain data like so it would be a plasma type thing not a roll-up but um yeah i mean roll-up is it's a technique that is definitely you know gonna happen and you know gets us to you know traditional payments infrastructure scale so that's that's really cool and you know it's happening and they they can confidently show that like they already did this like they tested they tested these these massive block sizes and the uncle rate didn't didn't go up so um we're definitely safe right now we can we can even get to visa scale using rollups so that's pretty cool they um so I found the conclusion in their article and essentially they said it's a little technical, so I apologize in advance, but to conclude, we see no adverse effect of increasing today the average block size by a factor of 7.5x, nor of increasing the individual block size by a factor of 22x. Based on this, the conservative choice to reduce transmission gas cost by a factor of 4x to 16 gas per byte is well-founded. So a 4x decrease in gas price would essentially have a 4x increase in throughput in Ethereum V1 as it is right now. And your transactions would be cheaper. Um, there still needs to be security analysis done on whether or not um, any existing contracts would be adversely affected by such a dramatic gas cost decrease, and not to mention there has been a gas cost decrease recently implemented in the new fork as well. Um, if not the most recent one, then the one prior. So we've increased the uh, transaction throughput of Ethereum a bit already, and doing it further is there's research now supporting that we could do it much further as well. Yeah, That's... they even claim 65x later on. 65x, I think they can like re increase the individual block size. So yeah, um, we'll see. I don't think they're gonna, we're gonna increase uh, or decrease the gas cost to a point where the of, of this of this opcode to the point where. Uh, the black size could go up that much, but you know, I think it's going to happen that it is going to go up a bit more probably in the next next hard fork. So that's pretty cool. Of course, we yeah. need to get these roll-up chains into production, which probably leads us into our next topic, which is optimism becomes optimism. <laughs> I love the name of the company. It is so fitting that Carl started a company called Optimism since he's one of the most optimistic people I've ever met. <laughs> so the uh do you want to explain the the newly formed company where they came from some of their background yeah plasma group basically decided that they instead of doing plasma they were going to do optimistic roll-ups so they should probably change their name <laughs> and the, the two techniques are pretty similar don't you know don't get me wrong entirely but they are distinct so they changed their name and they raced around from Paradigm, who led the round, and also IEO, who participated, had a, had a little chunk. And they are going to put optimistic rollups into production. And that's cool. It'll Part of the reason they decided to do optimistic rollups instead of Plasma is because the Plasma techniques that really were found to be scalable were really more useful for DEXs and whatnot. And to do full EVM on Plasma is really hard and definitely an unsolved problem. So 
optimistic roll-up is just a lot easier to do that, and that's really what people wanted. So they are doing optimistic roll-up, and yeah. That also, and actually on this topic, another another full EVM on uh, optimistic roll-up called Interstate Network, who has a pretty similar approach. They also uh, unveiled um, their you know their draft white paper, and uh, it's also out there. And there's also the Fuel team. Was it called Fuel? Uh, we spoke about yeah. this in the previous episode. Yeah, that's Nick Dodson and John Adler. They are doing a a a fo- more payments. Like they are focusing. It is an op- it's an optimistic rollup, but they're focusing on basically tokens. So ETH transfers, ERC twenty transfers, token transfers. I think seven twenty one transfers as well. Like I don't see any reason why not. I don't think it's any more complicated. So I figured they'll probably include that as well. But uh, not full EVM. Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm excited about this um, Optimism company. It seems like they have a long way to go before they make uh, modifying smart contracts from their current state to being optimized for a roll-up chain. Um, and I think they could essentially close deals with companies that need this type of scaling solution now. Um, for example, they implemented a protocol called UniPig, which is a Uniswap protocol, Uniswap-like protocol, um, built onto a roll-up chain. And they partnered with Uniswap to implement this, and they had a demo of it running for DevCon. And now they're going to essentially go through uh, code audits, and they're going to like improve the security of uh, the entire system and definitely have more security researchers look at it. And then they're probably going to contract out with individual companies like Uniswap, and they're going to work with them to have production deployed roll-up chains um, that are optimized around the smart contract needs of the individual organizations. So, yeah, I think I'm optimistic about their chances of... Um, what, what? Yeah, that was too easy. <laughs> it wasn't even gratifying. <laughs> and the the other thing that's interesting. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. I was going to change topic, but go ahead. Oh, I was going to say they did a public benefit corporation. So mm-hmm. I don't know a ton about public benefit corporations, but you know, I assume they're doing it in Delaware, which means that I think they. Delaware was probably like six years old that they added this to their to their uh, to their uh, what's the word I'm looking for statutes and um, you know I I think those are interesting because they're basically um, you know they're trying to make it so that the idea is so that you're not just accountable to shareholders but you like you also will have some sort of balance between shareholders interests and um, the stated public benefit of the corporation I the skeptical side of me thinks that like public benefit corporations are basically just virtue signaling and like I don't really think that we've worked out the hard issues there like like what does that really mean to like balance the two I mean that is something that is going to be worked out in a series of lawsuits over decades right um, so we'll see, I guess, but it's an interesting idea. And it's also interesting that in our space, particularly like some, some crypto funds were willing to put money into a different sort of corporation rather than, you know, a traditional Delaware, you know, C Corp, S Corp or LLC or, or whatever the case may be, some sort of Delaware corporation. So. The beauty about Delaware corporations is the fact that uh, management and ownership have nearly like it's very hard to control the management decisions. Managers have a disproportionately like um, stronger hand in Delaware corporations. So if they have a Delaware corporation and they have a majority of the company, then they can almost do any decision unilaterally um, 
of their investor investors' interests, um, with few exceptions, with exceptions of uh, situations in which they could prove monetary damages, and that, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, it's very powerful. There's also C corporations in California. I'm surprised I haven't seen any C corporations because these are um, the essentially like a Californian corporation that tries to um, have a social impact. And a C Corp is like, they essentially measure the uh, impact to like the community that they serve uh, to the shareholders and to the workers. And they have, uh, it's definitely not a not-for-profit, but it is, um, an organizational structure that tries to have the positive impact of a not-for-profit written into its charter while as long as it like meets or maintains the company's financial solvency um, so there's no like profit maximizing um, charter the way a normal corporation would I find those like corporate structures really interesting I'm not very familiar with the benefit corporation structure of Delaware. Um, so I'll have to look into that a little bit more, but it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, a bunch of, a bunch of states have passed these, like these benefit corps. I, I mean, I like, so the reason why Delaware became the place to, to file your corporation was that they, they basically, if you're a business and you get sued, you basically always lose because you know, the, some trial lawyer puts you in front of a jury and, you know, talks about how, you know, some kid got injured and you're basically always going to lose, right? So the reason why people started filing in, in Delaware, their corporations, is that they did a chancery court. So they had a court which is by statute equally Republican and Democrat. So like, um, and, and Delaware at the time was like a pretty swing state. So it like made sense that like over the years that like, it wasn't a problem to have partisan balance and you basically would could be confident that if you filed in delaware you would have relatively like stable corporate law and you wouldn't get demagogued by a trial lawyer in front of a jury instead you would like have experts that would like try to weigh these things mm -hmm. and um yeah um so I, I feel like it's really interesting to see how this like evolves with everybody passing public benefit corps because like these B corps are mean that like you like if you go to California, like California isn't necessarily known for having good governance. <laughs> so I don't know, like it'll be interesting to see like do people want to subject themselves to that like in a benefit corp? Mm -hmm. My guess is that most people still want to file in Delaware for these benefit corps, but like B, B corporation, but we'll see. Yeah, there's some uh, there's some famous companies, even tech companies that are certified as B corporations. For example, uh, Kickstarter. Yep. Kickstarter is actually registered as a benefit corporation as well. And I'm sure it's done very, very good for its Union Square <laughs> VC investors. <laughs> um, and... Yeah, it, it's possible to still make money and still have a positive impact. I don't, yeah, I don't know if it's worth the um, extra overhead, but it's interesting because I don't think a foundation structure makes sense for most crypto projects. Crypto projects are essentially like printing magic internet money and hoping that it vastly appreciates in value, while at the same time they're governed by a foundation. Um and does the foundation actually represent uh, token holders? Does it represent token holders in proportion to the amount of tokens that they hold? Well, in that case, then founders disproportionately are their community that they're benefiting, or is the independence that comes from having a foundation um, simply to kind of protect it and insulate it from other types of government intrusion that uh, normally would be applicable to for-profit companies that move massive amounts of money across borders. Um, 
I'm not a lawyer. I don't know why. Um, all of these decisions and legal decisions, I've noticed that there have been patterns uh, amongst the way crypto companies have been uh, set up. But it also seems like the pattern is constantly evolving because uh, regulators have been playing catch up. And it's it's a moving target. But I wish them the best. <laughs> There's the one last thing that we wanted to discuss, which is um, Steamflow. Or is it Streamflow? Yeah, Streamflow. Live beer. Streamflow. Yeah, I think it's... I think it's a, a really cool release and something I'm optimistic about, like um, leading to. I just I think it's like something that could very much be a a thing that gets people into crypto from even outside our space. So basically, like LivePeer has been usable for I don't know, let's say a year and a half. I think it's about right, but like it was like very barely usable and they are changing to a like much more scalable model. Um, so one thing that this release lets people do, like GPU miners can now transcode video while they're mining. Um, and like they can pick up, obviously every graphics card is gonna need its own benchmark, but they've benchmarked a couple graphics cards. And basically if you're mining on your home hardware, uh, or even if you're a commercial miner or, or at scale, you can you can stick a couple of transcoding streams on there, and you can lose very little hash power. So, and obviously, if you stick a whole bunch of of transcoding streams on there, then you will eventually start losing hash power, right? As as the the, the competition for resources within the GPU. But uh, I think it's really cool because you know GPU miners. They're always, you know, operating at break-even, so they're always looking for some new way they can make money. So basically, every GPU miner has an incentive to adopt this, which will make it quite cheap to transcode video, which then should like make them much cheaper than these centralized solutions. And yeah, I think it, you know, it has the possibility of, you know, somebody like I don't know ESPN or YouTube. I mean, I don't think they're going to be the first to adopt it by any means, but when you have cheaper, cheaper, cheaper decentralized solution than trans centralized solution, that is something that's going to make people wake up and, and think about it. Uh, and the way they do this is through probabilistic micropayments, which I can talk about that. But maybe you want to jump in on that. I, I heard about the idea behind probabilistic micropayments a while back, and I thought it was genius because they have very small but very frequent payments that represent values of time. So they were thinking, like, if someone keeps paying the same amount over, like, a five-minute video and you want to set up a payment system so that you're paid fairly in proportion to the amount of data that you consume. So it depends on the amount of the video that you watch. But at the same time, like you can't have uh, too large increments of uh, like time watched. Otherwise, essentially, there would be large segments of data transfers that essentially slip under the radar. How do you make a fair system that doesn't create too many small repetitive nearly identical transactions and their solution was quite genius in its simplicity and the idea is that you have provably fair probabilistic payments so there is a percent chance that you will have a payment on fixed time intervals the time intervals are small but because they happen so frequently then overall you pay I don't know, I'm adding numbers to this without having looked into the details recently, but you pay once out of every 100 um, milliseconds, right? And then that only mean that means you pay like 100 times fewer often. So you essentially make like larger payments that represent the likelihood that you've been watching for that 100 segments. Yeah, I, it's a super neat, super neat solution. Did I complicate it more? Because it's actually really simple. <laughs> Maybe you could have done a better job in explaining that. 
No, I mean, some sometimes they sort of call it layer two, which, you know, I would say it's not really, but it is sort of a competitor because it is a way to do a bunch of payments, um, but not do a bunch of payments. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do them probabilistically. And, and, and there's no reason why, you know, randomness is hard on Ethereum, but when you're doing these tiny little payments, right? Like it's just not at scale to, for it to be worth to bias them. So yeah, it makes a, makes a bunch of sense. Yeah. And it's, it's very interesting. Um, it only really works for the use case of unidirectional, like small transfers, but anything that takes stream payments, imagine you're filling up on electric car and you're automatically paying with crypto. Um, this would be a perfect example in which you could do the same thing, right? You could have units of electricity that are really small in terms of their measurement. And you don't want to have large units of electricity because then you can game it. You can fill up just to the point in which like the number ticks over. So instead what you do is you just set up a probability distribution and you say you have a random, you have a one in a hundred chance that every hundred units of you filling up your gas tank, you actually have to pay a dollar, right? And when those units are too small, then there's no way to really game it because it's provably fair over a sufficiently large number of attempts. And I think this is something that can be applied to a lot of these um, like Raiden or um, like Lightning Network type payment systems in which you have to establish a direct connection and then you have like very cheap point-to-point uh, -point transactions and rather than like moving your money onto a layer two solution having like someone act as an intermediary like <laughs> go through attestation rounds essentially you'll say like okay so i owe you one cent i'll give you a one in a hundred chance that you have to pay me one dollar and if you can prove that it is fair within the existing system, you can repeat that game until it is fair. And every time you do it, it is the expected value is your actual cost. And you play that game enough, eventually it becomes the the expected value becomes the actual value. It's it's gonna have a lot more applications than uh, than just live peer. Um, but, and it is open source, so anybody can steal it and should. Yeah, I, I liked how neat it was. In uh, <laughs> I, it just it goes against a lot of the thinking that you would in crypto because everything you do on Ethereum is deterministic essentially, but all of a sudden you have a system in which it's like, oh well, probability might be our way to scale. I like it. Yep. Well, cool. I think that wraps it up. It does. Great show. Talk to you next week. Adios. Ciao. Thank you.